I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We start with a November to remember. Stocks on track to snap a three-month losing streak as futures look to finish the month on a high note. And call it an R-rated interview. The message Elon Musk has for companies that have suspended advertising on his social media platform X, even apparently singling out Disney CEO Bob Iger. And it is decision day for OPEC as the group kicks off its delayed policy meeting with analysts and insiders, widely expecting more cuts in the weeks and the months ahead. Plus, OpenAI makes it official as Sam Altman secures the top job once again. And then later in the show, speaking of AI, we continue our week-long coverage on the 2023 arms race with a closer look at the healthcare industry. It's Thursday, November the 30th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start your day. As always, we're going to kick off this hour with the check on U.S. stock futures and take a look right here. Looks like the Dow would open up about 170 points higher. Again, it is very early, but a strong start to the futures right now. Uh, We're looking to end the month on a high note with the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. They're all on track for their best monthly performances since 2022 and set the snap three month losing streaks. You can see the upside moves here. Uh, the Nasdaq doing the best, up almost 11%, getting another boost from Snowflake and also Salesforce earnings this morning. We're also checking the bond market. Yields hovering near their lowest level since back in September. Take a look right now. We're seeing the 10-year note at 4.29. We saw yesterday it dipped down to about four and a quarter. So again, seeing yields continue to move lower. Similar story for the two-year and the 30-year, the long bond moving lower in recent days. We're also looking at the energy market, specifically oil. As OPEC kicks off its production policy meeting today, take a look. Crude right now up just about 1%. WTI at 78.60 a barrel. Brent crude at pretty much 84 bucks a barrel. Again, both of them up 1%. We'll have much more on that OPEC policy meeting coming up later in the show. All right, that's your morning money set up now. We want to turn our attention back to stocks. The strong month may be fueling hope for a potential Santa Claus rally, but... J.P. Morgan is less optimistic about the year ahead. And in new notes, strategists at the bank calling for the S&P 500 to drop to 4,200 by the end of 2024. That would mark roughly an 8% decline. JPM citing a more challenging macro backdrop for stocks, including softening consumer trends and geopolitical risk. Let's talk much more about this and the broader markets with Seema Shah, Chief Global Strategist at Principal Asset Management. Seema, good morning. It is great to have you here. Good morning. So I think we have to just jump off from that J.P. Morgan note. Agree or disagree that we're headed towards a downturn in the markets come 2024? They're seeing as much as an 8 percent drop. Again, the S&P falling back to 4,200. So I partially agree with them. I I think that the first half of the year could be a little bit more challenging um, because I think rate expectations have moved a bit too far. And I think there could be an economic slowdown. But I also believe that once you get towards the second half of the year uh, and some of that economic weakness has passed and the Fed at that point, we believe, would have started to cut rates. I actually think the second half of the year could be very strong for the S&P 500. Okay, so you see a better second half. I want to give a sense. Um, The J.P. Morgan cited geopolitical risk, also a slowdown in consumer spending. Are those the points that you agree with that we're going to see more geopolitical risk and also consumers will continue to be stretched and maybe slow down on the spending? That's really propped up not only the economy, but also the market. So I would agree with the consumer part. Uh, I do think that you're starting to see some signs of that already. Uh, We saw from the Fed Beige Book overnight that they are starting to see some strains building in that space. 
And even with some of the Black Friday sales, although the numbers are very strong, you are seeing this dip into uh, buy now, pay later, which does suggest that drains uh, will, will build as you get through to 2024. Having said that, though, the geopolitical risks, I understand it's a risk, uh, but typically it's best for investors not to trade around that they typically don't have a sustained market impact. Uh, so I think from, from the macro side, it's really about the consumer. But again, we don't think it's falling off a cliff. They do come into 2024 with very strong household balance sheets, which should sustain them pretty well into 24. Got it. You also say that investors should be prepared for some near-term volatility. How should investors prepare? Is it investing in bonds? Is it diversifying your portfolio? What's the moves that you think they should take? Well, I think in terms of the volatility, where it's going to come from is, you know, we've already got the market now pricing in rate cuts uh, in the first half, as soon as, in fact, in, in March, which does seem quite early for us, uh, given uh, the kind of the narrative that you're getting from the inflation story as well, and also from the economy at this point. Um, so I think there's going to be a pullback, and that does suggest some volatility within the bond space. Um, you know, take a longer perspective, look out over a six to, to nine month period, and it gives you a better idea of what to expect. So I do think you should be diversified. There will be gains for equities as you go through 2024. So it's probably worth getting some exposure now. And within the fixed income space, for us, because we're expecting a slowdown, it does mean that you should have exposure, but really focusing on some of those higher quality assets which can sustain themselves as you get a downturn. All right. Seema Shah says the higher rates are putting the income back in fixed income. Seema, great to see you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Turning now to our other top story this morning, Elon Musk giving companies that have suspended advertising on his social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, a message. Go sell ads somewhere else. I hope they stop. You hope? Uh, Don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. But go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. I think a lot of people in that crowd left speechless. You don't need too much imagination to imagine what was behind that bleep. Uh, speaking at the New York Times Dealbook Summit with our own Andrew Ross Sorkin yesterday, Musk went on to repeatedly apologize for publishing a tweet earlier this month that agreed with an anti-Semitic post. The Twitter owner says he handed his critics a, quote, loaded gun. I'm sorry for that, that, that tweet or post. It was foolish of me. Of the 30,000, it might be literally the worst and dumbest post that I've ever done. Um, and I try to my best to clarify uh, six ways to Sunday. Um, but, uh, you know, at least uh, I think over time it will be obvious that, in fact, far from being uh, anti-Semitic, I'm, in fact, philo-Semitic. Um, and my, all the evidence uh, in my track record uh, would support that. And remember, he said, hi, Bob, in those comments. Musk apparently calling out Disney CEO Bob Iger, who also spoke at the Deal Book Summit yesterday on his company's decision to pause advertising on X. We just felt that the association with that position and, and Elon Musk and X was not necessarily a positive one for us, and we decided we would pull our advertising. And you- we are allowing, we are, we, we are now allowing entities at the company to use X as a platform to communicate. ABC News is a good example of that. ESPN, another. We use it. But do you anticipate this is uh, forever? I haven't. Uh, I haven't readdressed it since the decision was made. 
And we will talk much more about Elon Musk and his comments throughout the show. All right, we got a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, it is decision day for OPEC as oil looks to make up some lost ground. What our next guest says could happen if the cartel fails to come up with a decision. Plus, a big day for the cloud and the two stocks surging on the back of some very impressive results. And later, we're talking AI and the impact all week long here on Worldwide Exchange. Coming up, a one-on-one with the CEO of CNBC Disruptor and smart ring maker Aura on how its impact, uh, how AI impacts his company day to day. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. OPEC ministers reportedly gathering this hour ahead of that previously delayed OPEC Plus meeting. This according to Reuters, which says the precursor to the, the delayed production policy gathering will focus on, quote, internal matters. The key focus for that OPEC Plus meeting will be the differences within the group on output. Sources telling CNBC this week that Angola and Nigeria objected to lower baseline levels for next year. Other reports are suggesting some members are considering new production cuts of as much as one million barrels per day. For much more on today's meeting, let's bring in Jorge Leon, senior vice president leading the regional oil markets team. He also previously worked at OPEC as one of the main authors of its World Oil Outlook. Jorge, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Frank. Thank you for having me. So give us a sense. Seems to be a little bit of contention around this meeting in general. And in theory, production cuts would boost prices. Why are Nigeria and Angola, why are they opposed to some of these proposals? So I think that the main issue here is that those uh, production targets were set for 2024 were set in June 2023, but those were preliminary. There was going to be um, there was there was going to be a revision of those of those production cuts, and apparently Angola, particularly Angola, does not agree with the proposed quota. Um, they are they are thinking that they can produce a bit more than what the what the external um, sources suggest for 2024. So back in September, when OPEC announced it would extend cuts, we saw oil come back up to 80 bucks a barrel. So right now we see it above that leading into the meeting. Oil certainly had a bit of a rally since then. What kind of cuts in your mind are needed to get prices either back above 80 or keep them up above 80 bucks a barrel? I'm talking Brent crude right now. Brent crude trading at 84 bucks a barrel. Um, What kind of cuts are needed to keep oil prices above 80 bucks a barrel? So I think you really need to extend the 1 million barrels per day, at least in the first half of 2024. We think that if there's no there's no extension of the at least the one million barrels per day from the Saudi voluntary cuts, prices would drop below eighty dollars per barrel in the first half of the year. If OPEC wants to um, put the oil prices up to let's say between eighty five and ninety dollars per barrel Brent, then a cut of one point five million barrels per day is needed. Wait, one point five million barrels a day? Okay, um, that that seems like a, a pretty extreme cut, especially when it comes to like as we mentioned Angola and Nigeria that are concerned about these baseline levels. Indeed, indeed. But I think it's clear now from the market, from the market participants that a looming surplus in the market is coming. So there is a need to act from OPEC if they want to sustain sustain the, the oil price. There's been upside revisions on supply. Uh, we've also seen, thankfully, the Israeli Hamas situation improving. So the geopolitical risk premium that we saw um, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, has essentially evaporated. So that means that if OPEC Plus wants to keep prices at an elevated pro- uh, level, around $85 per barrel, then they really need to act now. You know, you kind of hit on something I wanted to ask you about. Speaking of upward re- revisions, we saw the uh, U.S. GDP number revised to the upside. What kind of things do the OPEC Plus ministers, what do they weigh? Do they look at numbers like that when it comes to production cuts or, or other macro factors going around, going on? 
I think that the two things that they look at is essentially the demand and the supply. On the demand, the, what they really want to look is how resilient the global global economy would be to higher oil prices. And if you look at the strong growth levels in the U.S. and in China, uh, with they, I think they they, they might think that um, a global economy could easily swallow an oil price of around ninety dollars per barrel. That wouldn't really derail economic uh, recovery. And on the supply side, they obviously see what is happening on the U.S. How much U.S. Uh, share production could grow um, if there is a higher oil price environment. And also surprises around Venezuela, for example, lifting of, of sanctions. I think those are the two elements where they they're keeping an eye on. All right. So, again, you believe a one point five million barrel a cut uh, barrels uh, a day cut is needed to support prices. But what do you think is actually going to happen and how do you think investors should view that? I, this is this is a tricky question. I mean, the meeting is starting in four hours. We haven't heard anything, which is a bit a bit worrying. I am confident that the, that the group will finally agree on a, on a cut. I think it's in everybody's interest of the 23 member countries to to reduce production to sustain oil prices. I think they will. They will definitely reach an agreement. Now, I'm confident about that, but I probably I'm a little bit less confident than a few hours ago uh, because time is uh, time is running out. So um, let's let's just wait and, and, and see what happens, I think. All right. Jorge Leon saying there are some questions about an agreement being reached in this uh, OPEC meeting that's been just a bit delayed, just a few days. Jorge, great to see you. Thank you again. Thank you so much. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, after taking on Detroit's big three, the UAW is taking aim at Honda, Hyundai, Toyota and nine other automakers, including Tesla, to try to grow its membership by the thousands, something that Elon Musk weighed in on last night. We're back right after this. If Tesla gets unionized, it will be because we deserve it and we failed in some way. Um, but we, we, we certainly try hard to you know, ensure the prosperity of everyone. We give everyone stock options. Um, we've, we've made many people who are just working the line, who didn't even know what stocks were, we've made them millionaires. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers. We're going to start with shares of Pure Storage. They are tumbling down more than 16%. The company offering disappointing guidance for the fourth quarter, citing a business model transition and delayed customer orders. This despite posting strong third quarter results, including a 13% jump in revenue. PVH shares also moving lower despite reporting a 4% pop in sales. The Calvin Klein parent company offering a relatively muted outlook, forecasting revenue to increase by 1% when considering the recently concluded sale of the Heritage Brands Intimate Apparel business. Those shares of PVH, they're down just about 4.5%. Snowflake popping on an upbeat earnings report and forecast. Revenue jumping from $557 million to $734 million on a retention rate of 135%. CEO Frank Slootman attributing the strong results to a broadly stabilizing macro environment. Shares of Snowflake right now, they're up more than 8.5%. And a banner day for shares of Salesforce, surging on better-than-expected earnings. Those shares up 8.5% as well. The software company reporting an 11% increase in revenue and projecting operating cash flow growth of 33%. The beat helped in part by Salesforce's recent cost-cutting efforts following several quarters of slowing growth rates. All right, shifting gears, earnings today. Shares of Dell, they're also moving higher ahead of earnings after the close the stock's up nearly 90% this year on optimism over artificial intelligence, which management says will be a key driver for long-term profitability. Investors also listening out for any commentary on the global PC market and if spending on electronics is showing any signs of slowing down. Joining me now with his expectations, Simon Leopold, Managing Director and in Data Infrastructure at Raymond James. Simon, good morning. Thanks for being here. Morning. Thanks for having me. 
All right, let's get into it. This stock um, having a very strong year. What are you expecting from this re- from this report? Yeah, I, I would certainly say we have a, a favorable bias on this report. Now, I, I think the first phase of this year really reflected uh, the PC bottoming thesis. And the latter phase that really kicked in on the last earnings report was expectations that Dell would benefit from AI. And I think both of these are going to continue to drive the stock going forward. Specifically, PCs sound like they're suddenly going to return to growth. Um, but this is facing a, a very difficult 2023. And the more interesting element and what we'll really be listening for tonight are the contributions from artificial intelligence. Last quarter, Dell disclosed that 20% of its server orders were coming from AI platforms. That was a big surprise at the time. And we're looking for follow up for it. Yeah, I've heard other device makers saying that AI can really change things, including HP Inc., when it comes to their laptop business as well. Something I want to hit on, you, you mentioned that uh, companies are trying to at least give investors the sense that growth is going to reaccelerate. But I'm looking at this quarter uh, when it comes to consumer PC revenue, that's supposed to decline 16 percent, according to the street account. When does this rebound happen and what's the catalyst for it? Yeah, and I think the catalyst is simply the comparisons, the year-over-year comparisons are beginning to ease. So we expect that we'll see steady improvement in these trends. So if we're down 16% this quarter and we're down by single digits or flattish in the next quarter, that's improvement. That's really what investors have been looking for. And the setup suggests that in calendar 24, we go to low single-digit growth in PC. This is not awesome. Not a growth story, but definitely better than the double-digit declines we've seen in the past quarter. Right. Um, Dell is the third largest PC maker globally, competes with Lenovo, Apple, HP Inc., as I mentioned. Um, Give us a sense. What's the competition like right now to not only um, get this PC business on the consumer level, but also on a business level? And how do higher rates impact all this? Yeah, well, one of the key points about Dell is that it is biased towards commercial PCs and not consumer products. So it is much less susceptible to the essentially consumer whims and and the macroeconomic, whether it's employment uh, and purchasing ability by consumer. So it's really the enterprise bias as three quarters, almost 80% of its PC business. So it's going to trend much more with business needs. And so the, the thesis Dell's been promoting is that as AI initiatives are embraced, that will drive somewhat of this better uh, PC performance for them. I'm a little bit skeptical that that's the near-term driver. I think that's more of a longer-term driver. But this bias is what makes Dell different from many of its competitors. All right. Dell shares up over 1% ahead of earnings. Simon Leopold, you say that the call on the AI commentary, that's the key. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, time now for a check on this morning's headlines. Outside the markets in your money, NBC's Francis Rivera in New York with the very latest. Francis, good morning. Hi, Frank. Good morning. We begin with breaking news. The death of Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, has died at the age of 100. Kissinger was known as one of the most influential and divisive diplomats of the 20th century, shaping decades of U.S. foreign policy. The daughters of Richard Nixon reacted to Kissinger's death, saying his partnership with their father produced a generation of peace for our nation. And former President George W. Bush remembered Kissinger as one of the most dependable and distinctive voices on foreign affairs. 
Also breaking this morning, the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in Gaza has been extended. The Israeli military says that negotiations for further prisoner exchanges are ongoing, warranting a renewal of the truce that has held for almost a week now. One of the hostages freed Wednesday was an American-Israeli dual citizen who had been held in Gaza. They are the second U.S. citizen to be released since the pause in fighting began. Frank, we send it back to you. Francis, thank you very much. You have a great day. You too. All right, straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, we're digging into the AI impact in healthcare from hospitals to wearables. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, it's right around 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and there's a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's still on deck. Stocks have to wrap up in November to remember with the markets moving closer to recapturing 2023 hops. Futures right now, they are in the green. And not holding back, Elon Musk giving a profanity-filled take on advertisers abandoning his ex-platform over anti-Semitic content. And our AI theme week, it just rolls on as we talk to two CEOs in the healthcare space on how they're integrating the Red Hot Tech into caring for you. It is Thursday, November the 30th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. As always, we pick up a half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures on the final trading day of November. Take a look right now. We are seeing uh, the Dow right now looking like it would open up about 175 points higher. We're seeing the Nasdaq up just about a, a quarter of a percent right now. The S&P firmly in the green. Strong start to the day. A strong November for all three indices as well. The Dow, the S&P, uh, the Dow and the S&P up 7%. You can see the moves right here. Uh, the Nasdaq up nearly 11%. All three are now less than 1% away from their 2023 closing highs. We also want to talk energy. Let's look at the oil market ahead of that OPEC Plus policy meeting uh, that's about to start actually very shortly right now, uh, just a, a short time from now. We see WTI up uh, over a percent. Similar story for Brent crude. Uh, we'll be talking much more about the impact of this meeting throughout the day. We also wanted to check on the European markets on the back of fresh Eurozone inflation data falling to 2.4% this month, down from 2.9% in October, and coming in below analyst estimates. Taking a look at the European markets right now, we are seeing them move higher. The FTSE 100, the best performer out of the group. Uh, the Italian FTSE MIB also very close. Um, the DAX and the Spanish IBEX, both up just about a quarter of a percent. We also want to take a look at the euro right now. Taking a look at the euro, um, take a look right here. Again, this is how the euro is moving um, in relation to the dollar. So right now we are seeing some movement when it comes to the euro. We'll be talking again more about that later in the show. All right, time now for a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hanau here with those. Silvana. Hey, Frank, good Thursday morning to you. Well, the open AI leadership drama seemingly coming to an end. The company announcing its finalized arrangements for Sam Altman's return as CEO and will give Microsoft a non-voting seat on the board. Co-founder Ilya Sutskever, who took part in ousting Altman before reversing course and pushing for his return, will exit the board. Elon Musk weighing in on the situation during yesterday's New York Times Dealbook Summit, saying the public needs to know what happened. One of two things is, is either it was a serious thing and we should know what it is, or it was not a serious thing and, and then the board should resign. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reporting Occidental Petroleum is in talks to buy Texas energy producer Crown Rock for a valuation of more than $10 billion. 
Crown Rock currently owns more than 80,000 acres in the northern part of Texas, which is the largest oil-producing region in the U.S. It's one of the last private companies of that size in the area and currently produces around 150,000 barrels of oil per day. That's according to Fitch. And the United Auto Workers strikes not over just yet. The union planning to launch a campaign with 13 non-union automakers after closing out record deals with Detroit's Big Three. The UAW says the campaign will cover nearly 150,000 autoworkers across names like BMW, Honda, Tesla, and Toyota. The participation at every plant or automaker is not guaranteed, and as part of the campaign, workers are in the process of signing electronic cards to support the union's efforts, Frank. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to turn our attention now to uh, today. A big anniversary marks one year since the launch of ChatGPT to the public and the start of what's become a year-long AI arms race, capturing investor enthusiasm and massive attention across industries from chips to the cloud to personal AI assistance. One industry on track for a potential AI revolution, that's healthcare. Estimated to be worth nearly $190 billion in 2023, up from just $11 billion two years ago. Joining me now to discuss this and much, much more, Bob Garrett, the CEO of Hackensack Meridian Health, New Jersey's largest healthcare network with 18 hospitals employing more than 36,000 people. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Morning, Frank. Good to be back with you. So let's just talk. How do you view AI when it comes to your hospital system? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Yeah, so, you know, I, Frank, what I, I see as AI, I see it as really the most profound technology in the world today. Um, if you think about it from a healthcare perspective, whether it's helping doctors diagnose disease earlier or helping more people enroll in clinical trials, there's no question that AI can um, improve healthcare in remarkable ways. And just think about the global picture. 100 million Americans have an undiagnosed uh, chronic disease. 90% of all healthcare costs today go to to treat chronic diseases, about $3.7 trillion a year, according to the CDC. AI has the potential to help diagnose disease earlier, help uh, treatments um, get online quicker, and even address physician uh, burnout. So that's okay. why I'm, I am so enthused about AI. Having said that, though, Frank, it's, uh, we, we have to look at it very strategically. We have to be careful how we deploy, deploy it. We have to be sure that there are the right governance mechanisms in place to make sure that it's used for the uh, the right uh, purposes. So we we at Hackensack Meridian have really focused on um, three areas. One is to uh, really um, improve clinical outcomes. Number two is to improve efficiency throughout our um, health network. And three is to give patients um, educational materials through AI that they, that were not available uh, before. Got it. And we uh, put we're together showing their some- audience your AI areas of focus right now. Um, I do want to talk about some of the safeguards that you're putting in place. Um, yes. Elon Musk, I don't know if you, you were watching this at the New York Times Dual Book Summit, talked about some of the challenges and potential dangers when it comes to AI, the fact that AI might be smarter than any person on the world in just a few years. So when you look longer term when it comes to AI, are, are we looking at a day where AI may make decisions about our health without human input or intervention? How do you move it forward? I, I don't see that at all. I think that uh, human input is going to be very important. Human oversight is important. Um, we have we've piloted with uh, with companies to uh, help us on the uh, on the governance side, Frank. So as an example, uh, Google Cloud, they help us. They they provide their expertise, what they've seen around the world in terms of um, AI governance. We uh, we 
match them up really with our own clinicians, with our operational experts, with our, our IT folks to make sure that whatever pilots that we uh, roll out, that there are the safeguards in place. So just to give you a couple examples. Well, uh, we before we get into pilot- the examples, I want to ask you about something that yeah. you mentioned just a short time ago, some CDC data. 90% of all healthcare costs, this really amazed me, 90% of all healthcare costs is for chronic diseases and also mental health treatment. So if that's where 90% of the cost is and AI has a chance to reduce doctor workload, I would assume reduce nurse workload as well, does that mean yes. AI is going to reduce yes. the cost of healthcare? It will absolutely has the potential to reduce the uh, the cost of healthcare, and and we're seeing it again. You know, as uh, you know, just to just to give you one example, uh, we're looking at AI um, in improving our operating operating room efficiencies as an example. So right now there could be holes in our operating room schedule. Through AI, we can make healthcare more efficient by filling those holes and putting patient um, operations in uh, in place sooner. So patients benefit, they don't have to wait as long, but it makes healthcare um, more uh, more efficient. In the area of imaging, as an example, uh, where uh, it's helping radiologists who really have to read hundreds of images a day, it helps them okay. um, prioritize those, uh, those that they need to do uh, quicker, that maybe uh, scans that look like they, they're positive and they might, there might be a uh, cancerous mass, as an example. Got it. So a they lot can, of challenges uh, and a lot of opportunities when it comes to AI. There, there are a huge amount. But, right. but honestly, you know, my, my, uh, my takeaway, though, is um, let's, not, let's not let the challenges get in the way. Let's be optimistic. This, this has okay. an opportunity to truly transform healthcare. All right. Bob Garrett, CEO of Hackensack Meridian, says AI could potentially lower healthcare costs and also get more people the treatment they need. It is great to see you. Thank you for being here. Well, in healthcare, it's not just the providers working to figure out the best way to utilize all of this new AI tech. There's also a massive market for wearables made by Apple, Garmin, Fitbit, and other companies, including smart ring maker Aura. The AI wearable company is a CNBC disruptor and one that just expanded its ecosystem to more than 600 third-party partnerships. Joining me now, right here on set, is Aura CEO Tom Hale. Tom, thank you for being here. Thank you, Frank. It's good to be here. So I'm going to assume that ring on your hand is an Aura. It is. It's an Aura ring, and it's uh, tracking my health right now. All right, so I got on a Fitbit. Yeah. Give me a sense. Um, this, I don't think this is powered by AI at all. What's the difference between something that we already all know about, a Fitbit, and the Aura, and what are the benefits for us? Well, of course, you, you know AI is powered by data, and data needs to be high quality. So the, the main differences of the Aura is that it's measuring from maybe the most accurate side on the human body, which is right here on your finger. It's also presenting that information to a set of algorithms that are making predictions about you. It might make a prediction about uh, how your day is going to go or maybe, you know, when, if you're a, if you're a woman, when, when your cycle is going to come. Or uh, maybe you're getting sick. And those predictions are powered by machine learning and by AI algorithms. Uh, the power of this is that, of course, AI is only as good as the data that feeds it. And so you want as high quality and as continuous data as you can get. So, for example, we can track your health and understand how you are changing over not just, you know, a day or a, a workout, but over weeks or months. And seeing deviations in your baseline is what allows the system to make predictions about your health. All right. So. This ring, you're saying it's the most, I didn't realize it's the most reliable place to get information about you and your body. You're, Think about it, when you go to a doctor, when they, where do they put the pulse monitor? They put it right at the end point. of your finger. That's because there's like uniform tissue here and the signal's very strong. Your heart pumps, the blood goes straight down to your arm. Right here, you're getting return flow okay. that's going back to the heart. So it makes sense to have a ring. Exactly. Um, I do want to talk to you about some of the challenges. So yeah. you just mentioned there's a lot of data just flowing through that ring, I'm assuming to some servers that you have. How do you protect your customer data? They're not patients. 
But I'm sure privacy is a, a key concern. It is a critical concern. Obviously, um, we need to be sure that your data is protected. We will never share or sell your data without your consent. We will absolutely make sure that it is encrypted and, and secure the whole way through. We think of ourselves really as governed by the same rules as the healthcare industry. So I do want to ask you, I don't know if you can hear. I got, I got a little sore throat right now. What could the aura do if you're about to get sick or you are sick? I mean, what can it do to treat the problems that you actually have? I understand diagnosis. That's great. Well, so much of what, you know, I think defines our health is actually defined by your behaviors and the choices that you make. Let's say you know you're getting sick and you feel it coming on. Well, you're probably going to change your behavior. But sometimes, actually, your body is reacting to something that's happening to you, and you don't even realize it. And maybe the ring will pick it up. So famously, uh, Aura is well known uh, for something called the Tempredict study, which was able to see signals of COVID two and a half days before symptoms emerged or before a diagnosis came through. And this is peer-reported journals in Nature. This is going to tell you all this stuff. Now, what's amazing about that is that your body is actually telling you things, and sometimes you can't hear it. You're just not sensitive to it. And and what the the ring does is has a very clear picture of what normal looks like for you and then can see very slight deviations and then give you that information. It doesn't say you're getting sick. It says you might be getting sick, and you maybe want to change your behavior as a result. Very interesting tech. Very, you know, I might have to try it out. You should. Tom, it's great to have I see you're wearing two of them. Great to have you here. Didn't know. Didn't know. Ring, your pointer finger. Take a look, and then AI will be able to predict all things about your health. Now, that's pretty cool. Thank you. Right, Tom, thank you for being here. Thank you. Next Wednesday, December 6th, join the CNBC Work Summit to hear from leaders and experts on the future of work and AI. Just scan the QR code or look at your screen right here for much more information. You can also visit CNBCEvents.com slash work. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, Elon Musk cursing out advertisers over their mass exodus from the X platform. We'll get the take from fellow tech leaders on Musk's R-rated reaction. We're back in a moment. Market flash for you now on Meta. The Wall Street Journal reporting the company will launch its Threads platform in Europe next month, adding the move marks Threads' largest expansion since it debuted back in July. Take a look at Meta shares right now. They were just up fractionally, but again, up more than 175% on the year. All right, turning back to one of our big stories this morning, Elon Musk giving companies that have suspended advertising on his social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, a message. Go sell ads somewhere else. I hope they stop. You hope? Uh, Don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's gonna try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. But go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well, let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. All right. Speaking at the New York Times Deal Book Summit with our Andrew Ross Sorkin, who was briefly left speechless after those comments, Musk went on to repeatedly apologize for publishing a tweet earlier this month that agreed with an anti-Semitic post, the Twitter owner says he handed his critics, quote, a loaded gun. Oh, let's not get over to our own Arjun Kapal, who's live in Helsinki, Finland at Slush, a major tech conference connecting VCs and startups. Sorry about that, Arjun. I thought we were going to play another soundbite. Um, give us a sense. Uh, those Elon Musk comments, is any reaction there? What did you make of 
Well, Frank, I've been asking a number of people uh, this morning about those comments. Nobody's heard what Elon Musk had to say, and I've got a few explanations for that. I think partly people are in their own bubble here. A huge theme at this conference is finding the next big European AI giant to take on the big US giants like OpenAI and Microsoft, Google and Amazon. So that's a huge focus here, and there seems to be a lot of VCs on the hunt uh, for the next big European tech company, as well as the number of tech companies trying to put themselves out and say, we are the next big AI company. So unfortunately, on the must story, you're stuck with my reading and my analysis of analysis of it, which is this. Elon Musk used the word blackmail uh, to say that advertisers are blackmailing him. It's questionable whether it's blackmail, whether advertisers want their content next to controversial content. But really, the whole episode to me uh, looked like a scene of a man under pressure. Uh, ad revenues are falling. Advertisers are flocking off the platform. There's debt payments coming up. He paid $44 billion for for Twitter, now X. That valuation has plunged dramatically as well. Now, advertising still very much the main revenue for Twitter, even as Elon Musk talks about X being the everything app with payments and social media and everything else. It hasn't quite got there yet. And quite frankly, the company still very much relies on ad revenue. And currently, advertisers do not want to be on the platform. And that outburst, I think, just underlines the pressure. Uh, Not only on Elon Musk, but the whole of X management is under right now, Frank. And we're not stuck with you. We're graced by your reporting. Great to have you here. Um, so maybe no comments about his advertiser uh, statements and, you know, some expletives there. But what about his comments about AI? Elon Musk has been a very vocal um, voice when it comes, about, comes to the dangers of AI. I would imagine there AI is a hot topic. Absolutely. I mean, look, there's two camps in this debate at the moment, Frank. There's the Elon Musk side and many others in the tech industry that says AI is a threat to humanity. It needs to be controlled. We need to be careful about how it's being developed. And there's the other side saying, well, those people are fear-mongering. They're doing it so that there's regulation that comes in place that actually helps the big companies out. So that's the two sides of the debate. And that's playing out here in Europe. One of the interesting things in the European Union is there's a big AI regulation going through the legislative process in the moment uh, and it's uh, expected to come into force pretty soon and there's two sizes there's the european union lawmaker saying we've got to regulate this stuff now before it's too late and there's the industry saying you can't regulate this now we don't even know the full potential of it and all you're doing is putting europe behind the us and china when it comes to the development of ai so that's from the European perspective, what's playing out here. It's a debate, I think, also playing out uh, in the US as well. And it's clearly one that doesn't really have an answer at this point. I think it's going to be fascinating to see. Right now, it's very clear the big US companies have taken the lead. The Chinese companies are are also very closely behind. The Europeans still very much trying to find their feet. There's been a number of interesting deals done in the past few months where European startups, with very little product, mind you, have raised millions and millions of dollars from high-profile VCs season investors and they're betting big now that Europe can produce a player much like OpenAI to compete with the U.S. and Chinese tech giants, Frank. Arjun Kapal live at Slush in Helsinki, Finland. Great reporting as always, Arjun. Good to see you. As we had to break, we have a market alert for you. Reuters is reporting OPEC Plus has reached a preliminary agreement for an additional oil output cut of more than 1 million barrels per day. Take a look. You see WTI popping on that report up over one and three quarters of a percent right now. Uh, that report cites one OPEC plus source. Again, uh, according to one report, OPEC agreeing to a cut of more than one million barrels per day. We're seeing oil move higher. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. We start with Disney adding Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman and former Sky CEO Jeremy Darrock as its new directors, as its board uh, to the board as it faces the prospect of two separate shareholder challenges. In China, factory activity falling for the second straight month during November, non-manufacturing activity also showing weakness, hitting a fresh low for the year. Shares of Salesforce moving higher after topping third quarter earnings estimates, the company reporting an 11% increase in revenue and forecasting operating cash flow growth of 33% next year. NASCAR reportedly inking fresh TV and streaming deals with Amazon, Warner Brothers, and Fox. Those deals are worth $7.7 billion, 40% higher than previous arrangements. That is according to the Wall Street Journal. And GameStop giving back some of yesterday's gains, where it jumped nearly 20%, its best performance in two months. This is the company prepares to report its earnings next week. As we gear up for the trading day ahead, let's get another look at how markets are shaping up to close out a very good November. Take a look at futures right now. We're seeing the Dow looking like it would open up almost 200 points higher for more. Let's bring in Amy Zhang, portfolio manager and executive vice president at Algor, also named a top manager for 2023 by Morgan Morningstar. Amy, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Frank. So I just want to start off. We're seeing futures just continue to move higher this morning. Again, as I mentioned, the Dow looks like it would open up about 200 points higher. With that in mind, give us a sense of how you see the day ahead. What's your WEX word of the day? Comeback. Why? Especially for small cap growth. Well, because small cap growth uh, stocks has been a bear market for almost three years, and uh, largely due to the period of rapid rate hikes. And uh, as, as you're seeing that, you know, the headwind is turning into a tailwind slowly and definitely in 2024. So uh, I think, uh, you know, 2024 should be a strong comeback year for small cap growth stocks. OK, so you're saying it's a comeback year. Um, one of the things that you're looking at is the S&P 500 um, small cap growth index. If investors want to play it, there's a couple ETFs we're going to show you right now. Um, why are you watching that one in particular? Why not just the Russell 2000? Well, I think it's it's uh, that's a growth index. You know, we're looking at the S&P 600 small cap growth index. And in fact, it's trading at a very steep discount, uh, you know, about 22 percent to S&P 500 at the moment. And historically, you know, in the last uh, 20 years, uh, the average uh, premium is about 14%. So you could see the valuation gap is really wide that uh, you could drive a truck through it. <laughs> and we really expect the valuation gap to uh, uh, close. And you've seen some of the reversion to mean already. And we think there's a lot of uh, catch up uh, left, you know, in the years to come. All right. So you're saying small cap growth essentially at a discount right now. I want to get some of your picks for us also in the small cap space. One of them's pros holding. Why are you so bullish on this name? Your pros is a cloud-based software company that specializes in price and revenue optimization. Uh, They utilize predictive and generative AI to turn data into actionable insights. Um, what is really special about Pros is that it has over 30 years of experience building AI and machine learning algorithm. That's really their secret sauce. And the company has spent, you know, uh, about 25 to 30% of its revenue on R&D for many years. So it's a very heavy investment. And all of those have, you know, coming to fruition now. And, um, and the company, you know, this year specifically has reached uh, the inflection point of becoming cash flow positive, 
And we think it is really well positioned to accelerate growth uh, with continuous margin expansion in the next three to five years. Phrase uh, special sauce that leads us to one of your other picks, a personal favorite of mine, Wingstop. I order from there on Sundays when I'm watching football. But you say this isn't actually a restaurant company. It's a tech company. Give us the elevator pitch on why you think people should invest in this name. Yeah, well, it's a very special company at the heart. Uh, the core, it's really a tech company because it has, you know, done a great job in terms of digital transformation. Uh, you know, in fact, you know, the company uh, wanted to have every transaction digitized and they have tremendous customer data that they can turn that data into uh, actionable insights for themselves, you know, better engagement. Okay. And in terms of the business, it's a very capital light franchise model. So it has the highest cash on cash return, uh, one of the highest in the okay. industry, 60%. So it's it's really a very attractive company and uh, also has a rare combination of double digit unit growth and uh, same store sales growth. Right. So very special company. Wingstop shares up almost 50% year to date. Amy Zhang, great to see you. Thank you for the picks and your time. Yeah, thank you, Frank. One more quick look at futures right now before we let you go. As we mentioned, the Dow looks like it would open up just about 200 points higher right now. We're seeing the S&P and the NASDAQ about a quarter of a percent higher right now. Thank you for watching. Squawk Box coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. 